Are you familiar with the concept of paradox? You know what a paradox is? It's, um, in, in, in its basic definition, it's two seemingly contradictory ideas, truths, that can't be true at the same time, in, in theory. It, that's the way they look. It's paradox. But after you further examine them, they're proven to be true. In math and philosophy, there's a lot of these little paradoxes, these exercises and paradox that allow for some really fun brain games. If you like brain teasers, some of them will blow your mind. There's actually a famous paradox called the liar's paradox. And if you want to mess with your friends, use the liar's paradox, because here's how it goes. I'm a liar. I am lying. <laughs> Y'all see the paradox? You see it? If the statement I'm a liar is true, then the statement I'm lying is true, which means I just lied about being a liar, which is true, and so on and so on and so on. That's a paradox. Now, that type of paradox is really just a brain teaser. And there's others. There's, there's multiple versions of these paradoxes. There's like 10 famous paradox statements. But there are some paradoxes that are more, they have a lot more to them than just fun little brain teasers, ways to mess with your friends. Have you noticed in Christian theology, in Christianity, Christian life, how many paradoxes there are in Scripture? You ever notice that? You have. You've noticed it. You just didn't know there were paradoxes. G.K. Chesterton actually says that paradox is the heart of the gospel. He calls it the sharp edge on which much of the truth of God's word is found. And some examples of paradox in Christianity would, would be Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Those can't both be true at the same time, right? Or can they? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three and one. We're told to be holy as I am holy. And we're also told that our righteousness is filthy rags. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, Matthew 11, my yoke is easy. But he also said in Matthew 7 that the way that leads to life is hard. So which is it? Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, but then says, do not think I came to bring peace but a sword to divide family and friends. In Romans 7, Paul deals with a paradox when he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Joy and suffering? Come on. Really? That's a paradox. The gospel itself is a paradox. The bad news that we are depraved sinners who are destined for hell if we don't turn from our sin and repent is actually good news. And when we get to Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, we're dealing with another paradox. But this is about the Christian life, Christian living, sanctification. So turn to Ephesians 6 this morning. In Ephesians uh, 3.16, while you're turning to Ephesians 6, Paul prays in verse 16 of Ephesians 3. He says, according to the riches of his glory, Paul prays that he may grant you to be strengthened through the power of his spirit in your inner being. And then when we jump down to Ephesians 6.10, we're told to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Sounds very similar to 316. But then in the very next verse, we're told, put on the armor of God. We must put on the armor of God. So which is it? Are we strong in the Lord? Or do we have a responsibility to put on the armor? Well, the answer is yes. And I want us to take a few minutes and see this. Paul is telling us how to live. He's been telling us through the entire book of Ephesians how to live, how to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're in a battle. God has given us this armor, and we're fighting in the Spirit of God. And our guide has guaranteed that we're going to make it to the end. But we do have a responsibility in the battle. And Paul's going to use this this military analogy in order to try to explain this concept. So read with me, beginning with verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. We looked at this section a few weeks ago. We've been looking at it over several weeks. We, we, We discussed putting on the whole armor of God. We looked at the schemes of the devil. We looked at who the devil is. We looked at, at how he tries to attack us. We even, even jumped over and did a little few, few weeks on angels just to deal with spiritual principalities. But I want us to focus today on verse 13. Because there's instruction here that will encourage us. In verse 11, Paul gives us instruction, and the instruction is dress for battle. There's something, but there's something we need to keep in mind as we work through this, and it's been going through the entire book of Ephesians, and we've discussed it over and over and over again. Ephesians is about the church. Corporate. We have to keep that in mind as we work through this passage. It's it's how the church reflects the character of God, how the body functions within each other, how, how we avoid sin, and how we're all in this together. And that doesn't change to individual instruction when we get to Ephesians chapter 6. Too often, we, we treat this passage as, as individual instruction, and I'm not denying that there's some ind- individual relevance here. But this is about the church collectively. We put on the armor. We stand together, unified as one person. Put on the armor. You have it. It's been given to you, so all of you put it on. Let's fight together. Put on the new self created to be like God in true holiness and righteousness. God's given us his armor And if you don't put the armor on, don't blame God when you find yourself losing the battle. That's been where we've been headed. And when we get to verse 12, he he gives us reasons for the armor. But in verse 13, he repeats himself. And that's where I want us to focus. I want us to focus on the repeat in verse 13. Because there's a slight change. The difference between verse 11 and verse 13 is where I want us to focus for a bit because there is a beautiful picture here for the Christian life if we take the time and really consider it. I want us to see how we can be encouraged in the battle, how we can continue to fight when the battle becomes hard. In verse 13, Paul says, 
Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Take it up. Now, take it up is a military term. It's not complicated. Literally means take it up. Pick it up. As if it's sitting on the ground at your feet. And we see the subtle change between 11 and 13 in this way. In verse 11, we see salvation. We see conversion. We've been given the Holy Spirit. He'll work in us to kill our flesh, kill sin, but there's a battle. Put on the armor God's given you in salvation and fight in the battle. Then in verse 12, we see the enemy, the real enemy, the enemy of Satan and the principalities and the spiritual forces of evil that want to destroy us. They want to destroy us, but they can't really destroy us. They, they would love to take us to hell, but they can't keep us from heaven. But here's what they actually want to do. They want to work towards making us useless to the kingdom while we're on earth. Can they make us insignificant in the battle? Their goal isn't our destruction because we can't be destroyed ultimately, their goal is to make us worthless in the work of the kingdom. To hopefully force us into a category of those whose works were such that they didn't even contribute anything to the cause of Christ. Like those in 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says, but if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through the flames. You made it to heaven, but you were singed on your way there. Those who made it to heaven but found out everything they thought they were doing for God was actually burned up. It was wood, hay, and stubble. They received the gift of salvation but no reward. And the, it's a battle and the battles are hard and the Christian life isn't about ease. It's actually about finding joy in Christ while we're in the midst of the battle. While we're taking a beating during the battle. Life will come at you and it will pound you with roaring cannons of doubt and arrows dipped in the poison of temptation and their spears wielded by those trained in deceit and every on every side trenches filled with the flaming tar of lies and to protect ourselves from enemies Paul says take up the whole armor of God but that doesn't always happen does it sometimes in the battle, we find that we've dropped a piece of armor. We dropped our shield because it just became too heavy with arrows of doubt. Our helmet's damaged. The sword of the word of God has somehow become dull and lifeless, so we set it aside. And then in the midst of this, we find ourselves in sin, and we, we, we lose our way, and we stop following the commander's orders, and we find ourselves lagging behind the troops, feeling defeated. The army's left us. I don't even know if I can catch up. Can we get back in the battle, or is our armor too damaged? See, verse 13 is almost a repeat of verse 11, almost. But there's one subtle difference, one verb that gives the Ephesian Christians a clear directive and it also gives hope for us today. See, verse 13 tells believers, we can pick up the battle, pick up the armor that we dropped during the battle. It may be battered and worn. It may look sad. It may look distraught. 
But we see all through the scriptures of God's grace towards those who have fallen in the battle. It's not over. You are never out of the fight. We see Jacob who removed his girdle of truth when he, when he discovered his blind and elderly father Isaac and he stole the blessing from Esau. And we also see that same Jacob who wrestled with God and becomes the father of the 12 sons of Israel. David, who laid down the breastplate of righteousness when he called Bathsheba to his bedroom and then had Uriah killed in battle. David found himself losing the battle for a long time. King David took a year over a year, before he came to himself after Nathan, in an act of mercy, nursed that battle wound and called David to repentance. It was over a year before David found himself, discovered he was without his armor. One year before David cried in Psalm 51 and said, I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And David picked up the breastplate of righteousness that he'd laid aside and he hammered out a few dents. It was still a little damaged and he led Israel. Jonah removed the shoes of the gospel when he refused to call Nineveh to repentance. Jonah was swallowed by the fish barefoot. But just as soon as he hit the shore, he put the gospel shoes back on and he obeyed God even when he didn't want to. I don't believe Jonah ever repented. We see Moses fleeing aside his shield of faith and anger in a moment of unbelief when he disobeyed God by striking the rock and rebuking Israel instead of speaking to it as God had commanded. But we also see Moses listed as one of the heroes of, uh, heroes of faith in Hebrews Moses had to walk over and pick that shield up and out of the dust and he brushed it off and he led Israel to the promised land. But there was damage done along the way. Moses didn't get to go to the promised land. David didn't get to build the temple, but they were still in the fight, never out of the fight. And this is what verse 13 is telling us. Take up the whole armor of God at all times, even in the midst of failure it's never been taken away from you. You didn't lose it. It's right where you left it. And you may have fallen in your duty. You may have found yourself AWOL. You may have at times, if you're a believer, found that you didn't even feel like you were still part of this army. But God says, pick up your armor. And the reason for that is so that you may withstand in the evil day. Standing ready. Second point. Stand in the evil day, withstand in the evil day. Now, when is the evil day? When is that? Let me tell you when it is. It's right now. It's right now. And is it getting worse? It's not. It's not. Feels worse. Feels worse for me than it did 20 years ago. You know? And I think it's always been there. Just a few extra things have exposed it, exposed the crazy. You give crazy a voice, they're going to speak, right? The evil days right now, you aren't waiting on the battle to start. It's happening right now. In fact, Andrew McLaren says these days, the evil days, it's when the cannons belch at once and the scaling ladders are raised on every side of the fortress and it may look like different things for everybody in this room. But today is the evil days. So, and 
we put on the armor so we can stand firm. And this stand firm is no retreat, no surrender. This is not clever maneuvering. We're not creative fighting. We're standing here. We're defending here. And when the world comes against us, we stand. And when the forces of evil, the schemes of the devil, try and distract us and make us worthless for the kingdom, they try to flank us, we stand and we stand firm and we stand together. And we beat back the forces of evil that try to take us out. And we stand firm on the truth when the world tries and tells us that the word of God is wrong. There's no retreat and there's no compromise. There's no peace treaty. We stand firm in righteousness when culture tells us that God's view of righteousness and morality is out of touch. It's on the wrong side of history. Who cares what side of history I'm on? I'm on God's side of history. We stand firm in the news of the gospel of peace that the message of Jesus Christ in the flesh came to bring us salvation. We stand firm believing that this message of hope is the only message of hope. The man is a sinner and in desperate need of someone to fix his broken spiritual state and that only Jesus Christ and his gift of grace can take a person from darkness to light. And it's the most exclusive message in the world that Jesus is the only way. It's also the most inclusive message because Jesus said, come to me all you who, are late, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But there's something that's unique about this standing firm that affects our Christian life, right? And this is kind of, this is really where the rubber meets the road for us. This is, this is where the paradox between living in, in, being strong in the Lord and putting on the armor happens. This standing, this resistance, it's intentional. In sports, it's called the ready position, right? If you played sports, you know, ready positions, knees bent, hands out, ready for whatever's coming at you. I would demonstrate, but I'm not. (laughs) I spent a lot of my younger days in a ready position, right? But in in battle, shields are up. We've dropped the visor on our helmet. Our belts are cinched. Our swords are drawn. Our feet are planted. And we're standing firm, ready for the attack. And standing firm is intentional. This is not letting go and letting God. Don't even know what that means. Heard it all my life. Right? I don't even know if the people that said it knew what it means. Sounded good. Preached good. God will fight my battles while I hang out in the mess hall getting some extra mashed potatoes. You know? God fights our battles, right? The battle belongs to the Lord. And those are true statements. But he also says, pick up your armor. Does God fight our battles or do we fight our battles? Yes. It's a paradox. Because you see, sanctification is not passive. At conversion, we become a new creation. We're not trying to be a new creation. We're not trying to become a new creation. We're not trying to work towards perfection. We are a new creation in Christ. In this new creation, we've been called to a holy living. And yes, the Spirit of God has guaranteed that we'll persevere to the end. But we've also been tasked with a responsibility to slay our sin. And that's part of the Christian paradox. 
We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. We can't. But now that we have the Holy Spirit, we're called to put on this armor to fight in this battle. John Piper said, we don't kill sin in order to live, but we kill sin because we've been freely given eternal life. Therefore, if we kill sin, we are alive, right? That's a paradox. I don't even know if he knew that was a paradox. He probably did. He's a smart guy. The truth is sanctification is God's work, but he performs it through self-discipline, and righteous pursuits of people, not in spite of them. And God's sovereign work doesn't absolve us from a need for obedience. It means that our obedience and its spiritual empowered work of God are working together to make us more like Christ. We still have to obey. And there's a a battle taking place It's a battle for the mind, and it's a battle for the heart. And it's why we're told in Romans 12, 20, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. That requires work. Renewing your mind. We renew our minds so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And how do we renew our mind? You renew our mind by knowing the word of God. It's a change of thinking. Our thinking becomes aligned with God's thinking, which is why he gave us the scriptures. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And God gives you the armor, everything you need to withstand the enemy in the evil day and says, crucify the flesh. And all of this is intentional. I read a quote by Leon Morris this week, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, you can't drift into sin. I mean, you can drift into sin, but you can't drift into righteousness. I'd like to blew that brilliant quote, right? (laughs) You can drift into sin, but you can't drift into righteousness. I'm sitting there thinking about that. He's so right. I think that's something we can all relate to. Have you ever drifted? Right? And I'm not talking about in the little rice burners we, you know, driving around the cone in a circle. That's not what I'm talking about. All right? That's intentional drifting. That's not really drifting. It's, you know, falling with style, right? Uh, you're riding a bicycle or you're driving a car and all of a sudden you realize you're straddling the center line or you're off the road, your tires are in the dirt, you've gotten off the path. And why does this happen? Distracted driving. It's why statistically texting and driving is six times more dangerous than drinking and driving, which is a crazy statistic to me. In order to stay in the lane and not kill you and everybody in the car or everybody around you, you have to drive between the lines. And in order to drive between the lines, you have to be paying attention. You have to focus on what you're doing, plan ahead for the unexpected, be able to control your speed. Be prepared to react to others. And most of all, do not expect the other driver to do what you think he or she should do. Right? That's defensive driving 101. If you didn't know, Google. Right there. You don't get to stare at the clouds and admire the scenery. You can't drive and sleep. We don't have automated cars yet. Here's hoping. I'm really looking forward to them. I know some of y'all are not. I am. I'm pro-automated cars. But when it comes to sin, we always find we drifted there. Christians don't steer into sin. 
You don't make a left turn, and I'm just driving along, and I'm righteous. You know, I'm just going to sin. It doesn't happen. It's not how it happens. No, it's a gradual drift that happens to the point where we don't even realize it's happened until we've left the road and hit a tree. And victory in spiritual warfare is not automatic, which is why Paul admonishes us to put on the whole armor of God and stand your ground against Satan. You can drift into sin, but you can't drift into righteousness. No one has accidentally started living right. And God wants us to be at attention, battle ready, standing firm, armor on, ready position, aware of the enemy at the gate. So we will stand when the enemy comes against us. And this last part of this verse is actually my favorite part. It says, and having done all, to stand firm. Having fought to the end, conquerors. Our final point, those who wear the armor, those who put it on, those who take it up, in the battle, even when they've dropped a piece, will finish well. You'll finish victorious. If you have on the armor, you will stand against the schemes of the devil. If you're standing, wearing the whole armor of God, God has guaranteed success. And in the battle, Paul's not only telling us how to survive the battle, but how to thrive in the midst of the battle. How to be standing victorious when the battle is over. And what does it mean to stand? Stand your ground. And we're told in 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering you are experiencing are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen. Praise God. I want to read verse 13 out of the New Living Translation. It's one of my paraphrases I use often. And I like the way they worded the end of this. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm, victorious in Jesus. Want to know what victory in Jesus is? That's it right there. And we see this in Paul when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In fact, turn there. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I think it would be good if you read this. Paul, in this section, Paul's called Timothy to be on guard, be ready in season, out of season. The battle is going to intensify. They're coming after you. Timothy, it's going to get worse. And then Paul writes in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, and he begins his goodbye. Here's what he says. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Who is that? That is us. That is believers, Christians, Christians of all time. That's the goal, right? Finish well. After the battle is over, you can say with Paul, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And in finishing well, we can claim our rewards. Because you see, salvation's not the reward. It's not. It's not. It's a gift. Can't be earned. Finishing well. Laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt. Thieves can't break in and steal. Those gold and silver and precious stones won as part of a victory in a hard-fought battle. Those are earned. Everything else will be burned up. All those distracted works, all that wood, hay, and stubble, they'll be burned up. And that's why we wear the full armor. This is why we pick it up and put it on, even when we're battle-weary. And we found that over the days, weeks, months, maybe even years, we've dropped a piece. And we want to finish well, and we have a responsibility in the battle. We have a responsibility to each other. We're not passive participants. But it won't be done in our own strength, and it will never be done in our own way. It'll only be done in the strength of the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we've been given everything we need in order to do so. We've looked at Genesis a lot over the last several weeks, dealing with Satan and even some of the other spirit stuff related to angels. We looked at Adam and Eve and their disobedience in the garden. And John Gerstner talks about the battles of temptation in Scripture. And he makes a contrast in in one of his writings between Adam and Peter. You see, Adam appeared to have everything he needed to prevail. I mean, didn't he? He was in the Garden of Eden. Never sinned. Didn't really have to work. Name some animals. No weeds. Didn't have to cut weeds. Pick some fruit. Just not that one. Just leave that one alone. The one. Thanks a lot. Walked in the garden with God every day. Every day. He had everything he needed to prevail. He was in the perfect scenario, yet yet he fell. How did that happen? It happened because he did not lean on the strength of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, on the other hand, Peter had nothing. He was arrogant. He was weak. He talked too much. And he bragged to Jesus, I'm not going to fail. But he did. And Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, here's what he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter dropped some armor. 
But Jesus prayed for him. His faith wouldn't fail. He could pick up the armor. And when he picked it up, what? Strengthen your brothers. And John Gershner writes this. He says, that man, Adam, in all of his pristine glory, made in the spotless image of God with holiness and righteousness and knowledge, was able to be brought to ruin by satanic temptation, proved that we never of ourselves are able not to sin. But no matter how weak our faith or how meager our discipleship, how much shame we bring to the name of Christ, that we can repent and turn again, and no matter how we fall, because we're united to Christ with love, which will never let us go, and Satan with all his craft and power cannot withstand the love of Christ. We will conquer him, and even in our best condition, we can't meet Satan, but in our weakened and debilitated state, sinning far more than we live virtuously. We're able to conquer him because Christ has given us the victory. That's the paradox. We fight, but we don't fight in our own strength. We stand firm, but we're not wearing our own armor. We're wearing the armor of God, the armor given to us by the Heavenly Father, but we must put it on. And that's where the battle is fought. It's where we're guaranteed success. We must take up this armor. And if we drop a piece along the way, the battle isn't over. We're not out of the fight Find the armor, repent, put it back on, and get back in the fight. And I'm not naive, because I've been there, I've lived there. It's not always easy. Life comes at you hard. The schemes of the devil are the schemes of the devil for a reason. The enemy finds a cheek in the armor, and we become battle-weary. But that weariness comes because we found ourselves trying to fight in our own strength and in our own way without the proper armor because the strength of the Lord is infinite. We hung out, Lisa and Maddie and I hung out with Pastor Jason, Robertson, Tasha, and Lily. Their their family on 4th of July went to the HB parade, which I always kind of like. And... um. Jason and I were discussing some things. He asked me what I was preaching. He reminded me in Psalm 23 of, bat, of David using battle language, military language. In the 23rd Psalm, y'all are familiar, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. There's a phrase in the 23rd Psalm that I, I, I could quote 23rd Psalm right now. I've been able to quote it since I was a kid. But somehow this struck me this week when I was talking with Jason. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now think about that for a moment. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now that's an odd phrase. Who sits at a table in the front lines in front of the enemies and eats a meal during the battle? God prepares a table for us to refresh us in the midst of the battle. He doesn't remove us from the battle. And Jason told me he pictures a big sign under the king's tent that says, I love, insert your name here. 
And that sign's not for you. You're a Christian, you already know Christ loves you. The sign is for the enemy. The table is prepared so your enemy can see you feasting at the king's table who has already conquered death, hell, and the grave. And the adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Jesus says to the devil, sorry, devil, this one's mine. They're in my armor. They're refreshed at my table, so do your worst. God has made this light shine in our hearts so that we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This, this makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves, because we're pressed on every side. This is what Rick read this morning. We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God, and we get knocked down, but not destroyed. And through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. And when you find yourself weary, when you find yourself feeling defeated, ask yourself, what armor did I drop? Where's my armor? I can tell you where it is. It's the last place you left it. It's at your feet. Take it up. Join the battle. Pound out the dents. And then give relief to the front lines. Because this is an army. An MVC. We're in the battle together. An army of one, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And we have a responsibility to this army when we see one who's down and wounded and weary that we may, they may be bruised and battered, but there's also grace and mercy. Pick them up, clean their wounds. Put the healing medicine of the gospel of grace on these wounds and wrap the wounds in the love of Jesus Christ so that they can get back in the fight standing firm. Because in God's army, there's no man left behind.